Do you ever find yourself confused when it comes to health and fitness? Have you been searching relentlessly on the most effective ways to achieve your fitness-related goals, only to find yourself even more frustrated? Well, we've got you covered. It's time to learn from the best, shorten your learning curve, and truly understand how to achieve your goals without spinning your wheels and wasting precious time. Welcome to the Minimum Effective Dose Podcast. Welcome back to the Minimum Effective Dose Podcast. I am one of your co-hosts, Mike Perry, and I'm here with the man, the myth, the man from Pittsburgh, Brett Jones. How you doing, bud? Fabulous. Uh, just uh, seems like we're really rolling into spring here, and uh, the the spring cleaning has been in full effect. Um, so I'm tired, but good. You mean kettlebell cleaning, spring kettlebell? Sorry, I just, I couldn't. That was... That was a, just, I'm wired it's, for dad jokes now. It's just how it is. Um, yeah, I, I hear you. Understand. It is, it is that time we are starting a reno at our house in, in one month. So we will not have a first floor for, for quite some time. That's going to be interesting, but that's not what we're talking about today. We're not talking about renovations <laughs> or spring. We're talking about, um, hip architecture and, uh, we're going to talk about the pelvis uh, sort of the the ball and socket, right? The femoral head and the acetabulum. And we're going to talk about how that is going to dictate uh, how someone moves. And and we're going to talk about structure and function and, and how those two dance together and the importance of those two things. So um, yeah, so let's kind of start off with uh, kind of the basic and, and, and the basics here. And I think the, the first thing we need to talk about is kind of, um, at least I want to talk about is positioning of the pelvis because uh, sort of the resting position of the pelvis, if you want to call it you know, an anterior tilt or a posterior tilt or neutral somewhere in the middle. Cool. Whatever you want to call it. Um, that's fine with me. But if you are biased in one way, you're going, it's going to change the way that you move and that's going to impact, um, all of your other, uh, lower body movement patterns. So that's a big part of it. So, um, you know, a lot of people say that an anterior pelvic tilt is, you know, it's the, the worst thing that could ever happen to you. And it's, it's going to give you all these different types of issues. Um, here's the reality of it for some, it's not an issue for some it is. And so it's the, it depends situation. And, uh, you know, um, there has to be context. I mean, I, uh, I remember seeing at one point, I forget what it was, but it was a picture of Usain Bolt sprinting and he has an anterior tilt. You're going to fix that. You're going to tell Usain that, uh, maybe you can get him a little bit faster. Um, probably not. Right. So you can't blame a bunch of stuff on, uh, just one thing, right. The positioning of the pelvis or the orientation of the pelvis. But it does sort of give us some ideas on how someone's moving. And obviously you can dig a little bit deeper when it comes to like table assessments and all that. But, um, you know, finding a good center, you know, centrating the pelvis, whatever you want to call that, or finding neutral, kind of like the lumbar spine or the spine in general, it's a range. So when someone says, I want to, you know, level their pelvis, well, that's a range. So what is neutral for them or what does level mean to them? Well, it has to really determine sort of what their entire range looks like to begin with. And you got to find somewhere in the middle. So I think, uh, don't look at centered or neutral as a destination. Look at it as a range, and then you can start to dig a little bit deeper. Yeah, I got a bitter pill for uh, most everybody uh, out there, including ourselves. Um, what you think you're seeing from an outside visual perspective might not be the reality of what's happening in that body. Um, they did a study, they took experienced clinicians, 
They, and this was a, I think it was a cadaver. Um, they did x-ray studies and they precisely identified the ASIS. They then had the clinicians come in and try to put a sticker on the ASIS. They're really bad at it. <laughs> I don't remember the statistics, but the, the, the long and short of the study was we can't even accurately identify the ASIS, which we think is one of the easiest landmarks in the body to put a finger on and experienced clinicians could not accurately find or precisely identify where the ASIS was. So when you walk, you know, you see people move and do stuff and you say, oh, look at that person's anterior tilt. Really? Maybe, maybe not. I've seen my pelvis on x-ray. I'm not anteriorly tilted. A lot of people will tell me, Brett, you're anteriorly tilted. Um, and this is when I was in a little bit of discomfort. So if there was a time frame for me to be anteriorly tilted, this was probably it. Um, so take everything you do from a visual perspective, even from a palpation perspective with a grain of salt, because the, the rabbit hole we're getting ready to dive down here is this notion of individual structural variation and how it influences everything. And just because you have a structural variation on one side doesn't mean you have it on the other. And we got to be really careful when we start saying X is true. X may be true, but it may not be because we're relying on our eyes and we're relying on palpation. And those two things have a margin of error within them and that we're not going to be seeing things 100% accurately. We're making our best guesses. This is where it's really important to have a movement baseline to start bouncing things up against, because I'm sure people are going to hear what I just said, and they're going to say, oh, yeah, individual structural variation. Well, what about the FMS? Uh, scores of two. <laughs> exactly. As long as you're fitting in the bucket of scores of two, you're within an acceptable range, and you can have a difference between those twos, and we don't worry about it. Um, so let's take that argument off the table for just a minute and get back to the, the subject at hand. But for everything we're getting ready to say, I just want you to keep that big old grain of salt in your pocket and realize that when we start talking palpation and visual assessment, you got to open the door for there to be um, margin of error because we may not be seeing what we think we're seeing and we may not be precisely on the piece or part we think we're on if we're. Uh, in a manual situation. Absolutely. And, uh, you I, know, I, I think love distributing bitter pills. Big, big, you're a big, bitter pill guy. I don't, that was a mouthful. <laughs> Anywho, um, let's talk about, uh, let's dive in and talk about the pelvis a little bit. Um, because uh, I, I think one of the things that we need to talk about right away is, um, you know, kind of mobility. Uh, the, the industry is very, very uh, mobility heavy. And what I mean by that is the majority of the assessments that we see are a, a lot of them are table-based passive assessments to see what, you know, sort of the hip is capable of doing or the, the ball in the socket type scenario. Right. And, and depending uh, of your, you know, depending on your experience and, and if you're a clinician or not, there's end fields. And what I mean by end fields is if you're really skilled and doing assessment of the hip, you can tell the difference between what is like a soft squishy end feel, which is usually tissue related or a bony end feel, which is, which is bone. So, but having the ability to kind of discern the difference between those two is, is a skill in and itself. But, um, I will say this, 
if you are doing a bunch of table assessments and you determine that there is a deficit in mobility, and then you keep on trying to improve that deficit, you may be trying to move bone and bone's not going to move unless you get in a car wreck or you call a doctor because bones don't just manually move like that. Right. So, um, our mobility is dictated by our genetics and our structure and 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 the bone, um, but also yes, a big part of it is our lineage and and where our families are from because that plays a huge role in our abilities to move. I mean, if you look at a lot of the old, uh, I don't know when when McGill came out with this, but he was talking about kind of the the shapes of the pelvis and having uh, a deep ball and socket versus a shallow ball and socket and how there's sort of pros and cons to each. And uh, you know, basically, if you have a deep ball and socket hip you'll have great stability, but you're not going to have a ton of mobility. All right. So you may be able to get like a good quarter squat or maybe look decent, maybe to parallel. But if you're looking to do like an astagrass overhead squat, it may not be the best for you simply because if you have a deep hip socket, um, there's just less room. And if you look at sort of where you're from um, and, and your lineage, if you look at, if you're from England, Scotland, Ireland, a lot of those individuals have deeper hip sockets. You're not going to see a lot of people from Ireland, Scotland, England competing in Olympic weightlifting, doing the snatch because it's, literally it's their lin lineage. Whereas it's harder if they have that similar bone structure, it's going to be harder for them to get into those end range positions just because of uh, the ball and socket and, and the shape and the depth, et cetera. On the opposite end, um, if you look at um, people that were born and sort of let's call it, uh, you know, I don't want to say just Russia, but, you know, you look at Russia, you look at uh, Ukraine, you look at uh, even in, you know, potentially China, a lot of these people that have very, very shallow hip sockets and and uh, they can get into better positions. But also the shallower the socket, you could have too much mobility, which could lead to instability, which could bring on another issue. So understanding sort of your background and where you come from may, may give you information on what you should or should not be doing. But the shape plays a, a, a huge role in your ability to move. And, um, you know, there's pictures of, among pictures, and I forget who the first person was to kind of put it out there, but it was a picture of a bunch of different femurs in the femoral head, and they were all from humans, and they all looked very, very different. And it was the same thing with uh, with the acetabulum, the pelvis. All the shapes lined up of the pelvis were different. And um, because of that, it was a great illustration of how literally the bone is going to change uh, how someone functions. And we have to look into that. And that is why we all squat differently. We, we lunge differently. We all do things a little bit differently. Now that's not an excuse to just throw everything out and say, I can't do that because of X. Um, you know, to truly understand the shape, you have to get x-rays, you have to get imaging, right? But I mean, there's, there's a lot that can be done through assessments and trial and error. But I, I think what it boils down to is, is try to optimize what you have. You know, you're not going to change the structure. And again, unless you have a, a, a surgeon go in there and, and shave some things and cut some things, but you're not going to change things. Uh, well, it'll change over time based off of habits, et cetera, but you're not going to rapidly change, um, you know, how things move. Cause it's just not gonna, it just doesn't work like that. But, um, it's important to understand that everybody is different and the, the pelvis, femoral head, the acetabulum and everything else is going to dictate sort of what you're capable of. And then. Then we lead into soft tissue, which is a whole nother conversation. Yeah, that would probably have to be a separate podcast. <laughs> let's 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 step back one one piece and and look at the pelvis in particular, um, because we tend to think of the pelvis as one like block 
and it's not. You actually have three uh, areas where the pelvis moves. Uh, we are, I think most people are familiar with the fact that their SI joint has some movement in it. We're going to talk about that here in a second. I was just going to uh, say. <laughs> but, but, but the pubic symphysis up front, where the two halves of the pelvis meet, and you have this uh, layer of cartilage and a lot of ligament and, and uh, structure up front, there is some movement there. Um, and so when people fall, when people, you know, um, have a trauma, that pubic symphysis can move. Um, and that can be a source of, of definitely a, a lot of problems. And, you know, um, the, the sports hernia rage of a few years ago, um, you know, pubic symphysis, you know, part of that conversation. But we follow that back and we look at the SI joint, the other area where the, the pelvis does have some movement within it with between the sacrum and the, and the um, ilium. Um, the, um, it, we're talking about three to five degrees of, uh, sorry, three, three to five millimeters of movement. That's nothing. That's what's that? I that's, think that's one, that's one to one and a half degrees, right? Right. And <laughs> go, goniometry is accurate to 10 degrees. Uh, so it's within a range that we really can't measure. You definitely can't see it. Um, and the SI joint is also incredibly stable. Um, it takes a tremendous amount of force to actually shift or change the SI joint. Um, but so know your SI joint's not out. Right? <laughs> you just, beat me to it. Just just like discs don't slip. Okay. They you can have a bulge, you can have a herniation, but discs don't slip um, unless you've been in some sort of massive car accident or um, skydiving uh, where your chute didn't open incident. Um, it, it takes a lot of force for these things to, to move and happen. And when we look at the pelvis, this, you can think of it as a bowl and that's where we get kind of our, some of our cueing. We talk about, you know, spill the water out the front, spill the water out the back. If you want somebody to anteriorly tilt, posteriorly tilt, or don't spill the water when you want somebody to keep it neutral. And there's a bunch of variation here, right? In structure, because some people have, um, a shallow pelvis. Some people have a deeper pelvis. Uh, you can look at the difference between male and female pelvis, and that's where we get into talking about Q angle that in, that they thought at one point had some influence in ACL injuries for female athletes because they tend to have a greater Q angle. Um, hips tend to be just a little bit wider with the angle uh, in towards the knees a little bit greater. That was thought to be a part of some ACL sort of stuff. And when you look at the position of the, the acetabulum, uh, that can be retroverted, introverted, um, slightly tilted in a way that significantly influences uh, what you're going to get uh, out of that, uh, out of the acetabulum in particular. And then to your point with uh, the femoral heads, um, coxa angle, alpha angle, um, again, retroversion, antiversion. Um, the, the depth of the, the femoral head and the socket and all of these different things, man, uh, at this point, and, and I've, I pulled up a couple of studies as we were talking about this topic before we you know, started the podcast and I'll, I'll send those to Mike and we'll, we'll get those in the show notes. Um, the prevalence of what we would consider, uh, uniqueness at the hips, um, about 87% of people show some sort of uh, FAI. Um, there's, it's a really high prevalence. If you're over 35, you've probably got some sort of uh, labral or paralabral cyst sort of situation going on. Um, and these are asymptomatic folks. These are folks that, that aren't having pain or problems. 
So there's a lot of different variation. At this point, I don't think if you have a hip structural variation, I think which one? <laughs> because more than yeah. likely, you, you're bringing one of these to the table. And, and you know, I've talked about it for years, my square pegs and round holes. I got a 62 degree alpha angle. My, and that's alpha angle is where your femoral head is supposed to change shape to, so that it plays nicely uh, in, the, in the acetabulum. Um, anything over 42 degrees is clinically significant. I have a 62 degree alpha angle on the right, about 58 on the left, which is why I squat with the outturn that I do and why I'm so passionate about individually adjusting foot stance um, to optimize the hip for everybody that I work with. So sorry for the brain dump, but uh, that's what no, was we'll building put, up while you were talking. No, we'll put actually, we'll put your lock and rock video in there too. And um, you know, we'll, we'll add that as a, as a resource, because I think that's super important. Um, and, and to your point, Brett, um, you know, when it comes to symmetry and, and the degree of turnout, right. Um, you know, a lot of people, and, and I was this way as well. I used to think everyone needs to squat exactly feet straight or it, when we squat, both feet have to be the identical, uh, you know, turnout has to be, if one's five degrees, the other has to be five degrees. Um, and well, well, first of all, if, if you try to squat everyone straight, just let me know how that goes with their feet straight. Let me know how that goes. Um, cause I can tell you right now, it's not going to go well. Um, not too many people are, are capable of doing that. And that's simply because of the shape, uh, you know, the shape of their hips, um, now, are there some benefits, uh, potential benefits from a performance standpoint to keeping the joint stack, keeping the feet straight? Yes. But at what cost? You know, you start chewing up that labrum uh, because you're trying to squat with your feet straight ahead because you some guru told you to do it on the Internet. Well, that's your labrum, not 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 his or hers. So um, just remember that. But, you know, the, the feet, when they turn out, they don't have to be perfect. They don't have to be identical, because if you do have two differently shaped hips um, and you need a small variation on one or the other, fine. Now, if you're squatting and your right toe is at three o'clock and your left toe is at 11, well, guess what? Maybe that's a little bit too much. I don't think your hips are, are that sort of wonky, if you will. So I, I guess my point is, is that um, spend some time. And, and, and also it's going to change once you get heavy too, by the way, because, um, you know, you give me a light weight, I can squat it 25 different ways and it's going to be different. But like anything, if you want to get good at it, you're going to have to put the time in. you're going to have to find the optimal uh, turnout optimal sort of, uh, you know, variation that's going to work for you. Um, but again, we're not looking for perfection. We're just looking for relative symmetry and there's a range. I, when I think about symmetry, when it comes to anything in the body, I think of a range, not as a destination. Again, it's like, if something's one or two degrees off, it doesn't matter. It probably, it, actually, I'm going to tell you right now, it doesn't matter. Um, you know, it, because like Brett even said, it's like, you look at the SI joint, you've got, um, you know, two to four millimeters. That's about one to one and a half degrees of movement. That's nothing. Um, that is very, very small. And and the untrained eye uh, is not going to be able to see that. And if we're being brutally honest, the trained eye is not going to see that either because it's such a small range of motion. So um, we're not looking for perfection. We're just looking for, um, you know, relative symmetry. And and also it's got to like, uh, if it looks good, it probably is. If it looks bad, it probably is. Honestly, that's like the simplest way I can tell you what movement screening is. We don't want to talk too, too much about that, but you know, uh, you know, I've heard it called the shit test. <laughs> It looks like shit probably is. <laughs> so, um, and I think coach Boyle's one that, uh, I've heard that with, uh, you know, time and time again, but, um, that's a big part of it. And, and it does absolutely impact the way that you move, just like shoulder anatomy is going to impact the way that you press, um, you know, the anatomy of your pelvis and, and your, your femur is going to impact the way that you move in your lower body. So, um, 
again, we're not looking for perfection. We're just looking for optimizing based off of what you have. Yeah, you know, when we talked about pressing, we talked about, you know, type one, two, and three acromiums. And um, you know, type one, nice, nice and flat sticking out there. Type two bent down a little bit. Type three is like a little beak mm-hmm. that's sticking down uh where it shouldn't be sticking. Um, and the, the, but the glenoid can be in different positions. Some glenoids are slightly tilted, you know, anteriorly, posteriorly, uh, superiorly, uh, they're deeper glenoids, more shallow glenoids. And, you know, the glenoids, not a real, uh, deep, uh, surface anyway, um, a lot of reliance on the labrum and the, uh, the, the ligamentous structures there. Um, the hip has a little more structural stability to it. Um, if you have ever seen video of somebody in, even in a cadaver lab with, with, you know, no musculature, um, when, when a hip is in the socket and you try to kind of pull it out, it, it, it doesn't just slip out. It takes a lot of force to uncouple, uh, that, that, uh, ball and socket. So great range little a lot really a lot more stability than what we find at the shoulder um but yet we have all of these structural uniquenesses that can get involved there um and you know we have these structures that get in, in, involved i think where i get frustrated with um the just people being unwilling to consult and find out the structure it's not just that i'm overconfident but if i can't change somebody's movement within a session or three, I start wondering why and structure jumps to the top of the list because structure influences function, function, uh, the, the old saying structure dictates function, but function also influences structure. Mm-hmm. It's a two-way street. If you get stuck on one side of the street or the other, you're, you're missing a big part of the picture. So we always want to keep in mind that uh, when we can't make those quick changes, you know, it probably is, it, or it could be related to a uh, structure and something you're not going to change. Um, I pursued hip internal rotation for um, a little bit of time before I ended up laying on my doctor's table. And he's like, dude, you look like my 75 year old patients that need a hip replacement. Like, what are you doing? I'm like, now, now that I have all the answers, I know exactly what I'm doing. And I was trying to do stuff with my feet straight ahead. Um, so you know, this is uh, a little, you know, hard-earned personal knowledge, um, but it, I think it is just really super important for folks to have that have that grain of salt in your pocket, have that thought that maybe it's not a tight muscle, uh, maybe it it could be structural. Yeah, absolutely, and um, I think that's the tough part for people to understand. Um, and, and if we dig a little bit deeper on that, right, um, I think the easiest concept out of those two to understand is probably the fact that, yes, your your hip architecture is going to influence your movement. And I think for most people, they can, can kind of get that. But when they're talking about, you know, their function influences their structure, they're probably thinking, well, how, how does that work? That seems backwards. Um, habits. What well, military, you do on- the military press. Uh, the military press uh, article that Fabio and Kathy Dooley and I put out where we talked about optimizing the grip. We talked about this a little bit in the last podcast, but, you know, here I was, you know, I switched to a grip that was not right for my hand and wrist architecture and I pissed my shoulder off. And so there was an, there was a case of function 
influencing structure because I was, but due to my anatomy, achieving those leverages with that change in grip torpedoed my structure because mm-hmm. it, it could, wasn't built to take stress in those, mm-hmm. in those areas. So super, uh, super easy example of how uh, function influences structure. And when we talk about alignment with integrity under load, you know, Gray's uh, kind of tag for the, uh, for the getup, you know, that's w- when we start understanding that uh, when we do stuff, the ground is holding it and we're trying to align our structure so that the ground holds it in the most efficient way, or we're trying to align our structure so that we can produce force through our system towards an external target, whether that's a kettlebell, a barbell, a person, a, a throwing an implement, whatever the case may be. I'm thinking of a kid that uh, I worked with years ago who uh, a pitching coach told him to open his stance leg, uh, his front stepping leg a little bit more in his pitching stride. Um, bingo. I mean, this kid's hip just went south. He's on crutches and can't even walk. Finally get him x-rayed and, and it didn't take long. I, I say finally, but you know, we got him x-rayed and, and, and got things looked at. And um, turns out, um, the way his structure worked is he had a kind of a fall off, uh, where I have a big old thick femoral head. He had a itsy bitsy one. <laughs> and when he stepped over and opened his hip, he literally slammed the, uh, anterior, the core labrum slammed the anterior lip of the acetabulum into his femur because there's this, uh, well, I'm going to call it a divot. Um, and it was all because a coach said, well, you know, you'd get probably get two, three more miles an hour on your, on your fastball. If you just open your stance a little bit more, um, kid didn't pitch for six months because it, it, it really pissed his hip off. So careful when you start saying, I, I, I have very few right and wrong conversations in my brain. And with people these days, I have conversations of, why are you choosing that strategy? Uh, for myself, I had always done things with a foot out turn. Didn't even think about it. It was just where my body went. And I never questioned it until somebody said, you should question that. And then I ended <laughs> up having an MRI arth- arthrogram and finding out a bunch of stuff about my hip. Um, so, you know, take, and and this is also where you want to tiptoe in to changes. When you start trying to say, okay, well, maybe this is related to this. Well, that doesn't mean that's like a runner going, I'm going to change my running style or a pitcher saying, I'm going to throw it a different way and goes and throws a hundred pitches. Or the person says, I'm going to change my running style. I'm going to go barefoot, but I'm still going to run my regular 10 miles. It might not have been the barefoot. It might yeah. have been the fact you decided to do too much too soon. Um, so there, there's, uh, and I wish I could have like one really great, set of guidelines to to give everybody but you gotta work with the body that's in front of you and um see what they're bringing to the table and by table i mean training uh and movement table the training table um you know what we should talk about which is uh i haven't heard people talk about it but i always get this question in person butt wink mm. the butt wink and uh you know i, I think there's a lot of uh, a lot of pointing fingers at le- the reason for butt wink. Um, so we're going to clarify that because a lot of people is tight hamstrings. Oh, yeah, I wish I wish it was just easy as that because we could just stretch the hamstrings. 
Um, I've heard Brett say on many occasions, um, when the hips stop, the back starts kind of what a butt wink is. Now, what do I mean by that? Um, we start in a certain position and, and I would argue that actually that the, the starting position, let's say in a squat is super, super important because that is going to dictate when quote unquote, I'm doing air quotes when this butt wink may or may not occur. Um, if you start your squat in a full or bias towards a, a full posterior tilt, you're probably going to hit that butt wink really, really early because you are literally running out of space for the femoral head to move in the acetabulum. And as you go into bilateral hip flexion, you hit an end range. That means, listen, the ball can't go in the socket anymore, but you're saying we're still going to squat. So what do you do? You keep on squatting, you lock one or two of your femoral heads into your acetabulum and you continue the squat and you see the butt wink, which is when that pelvis goes into that sort of posterior pelvic tilt. That is essentially what's happening. Um, again, that's, that's they stu- the structure talk, right? Because you can't change the structure now. Oh, go ahead, Brett. You, you said posterior tilt. Did you mean anterior tilt? No. Because uh, when somebody. No, posterior tilt. So if they start with a posterior tilt and then they go continue to squat, you're going to see more of that as they descend. If they start in a big anterior tilt, you're going to see that earlier. Yes. Yeah, that's what Got I got. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yep. sorry. Um, yep, yep. I'm going to, I'm standing up, like putting my hands on my hips now to see if I like set it the right way. <laughs> but I guess what my point is, is that the, the positioning in which you start your, you'd start your descent into the squat, whether it's centered or biased towards anterior or pelvic or anterior or posterior is going to impact what the entire movement looks like. So you have, that's why finding so, so, you know, quote unquote center is really, really important. But if, again, if you go down, um, and you descend eventually, you will run out of range of motion. And a lot of that has to do with the depth of the hip socket, deeper sockets. You're probably going to see that posterior pelvic tilt, uh, pelvic tilt happen earlier, uh, in the range of motion, you know, people that have a little bit sort of more shallow sockets, um, they can probably go down a lot deeper and you may not even see that. I've seen some people drop down into a perfect, you know, astrograss squat, their butts two inches above ground and they've got a quote unquote neutral spine. I mean, that's not due to cause they stretched a lot. That's just genetics and um uh you know people that just are are kind of built to squat um who is it is it Joanna she's got like like her squat is like I mean well, she can deep. Pis- she can she can pistol without losing uh lumbar position which is I mean, a that's, truly rare yeah rare that's almost skill. unheard of so yeah. but there's a perfect an example and, and and not to mention she's super strong and she's very disciplined yeah. and she knows what she's doing. So we have to add all of those factors into it as well, but um, it does make a difference for sure. And again, um, the butt wink, uh, you can, don't blame it on, mu- don't blame it on muscles. Muscles go along for the ride. So you can blame it on muscles because it all happens together. It's a, you can blame it on muscles. You can blame it on fascia. You can blame it on whatever you want, but it, you can't, you can't differentiate those things. You, if the, if the bones are moving, so is the fascia. If the fascia is moving, so are the muscles. I mean, so it, it's, it, they're all part of the party, you know? So I think if you're blaming it on this and that, then uh, I think you're, um, potentially setting yourself up for, uh, uh, a big knowledge bomb down the road. Well, and that's where the lock and rock and adjusting the stance comes into play as well, because once you go past the starting position of the pelvis, whether you're anterior, posterior, neutral, um, and now if you don't optimize the stance and I'll use my self as I always do as an example. Um, I've got 
the alpha angles that I have completely torn labrum and anterior labrum is completely torn on my right hip. Um, and I have some paralabral cyst and that was a decade ago that I had that. So I'm sure there's new stuff to find on imaging. Um, I squat pretty well. Um, I squat deep and I squat, uh, with regularity. Um, and I don't have any problems and, but it's cause I adjust my stance. And yes, I use a generous outturn that uh, people look at me funny for, but, and I know how to create space in my hips, which is the other piece of the conversation is a lot of people when they squat, they might not have a really bad pelvis position. They might have, might not have a really bad um, hip structural thing going on, but they don't know how to create space at their hips. So they literally just run into themselves at a certain point and when the hip stops the back starts and boom there's your butt there's your butt wink um squatting is an active process not just of putting the knees past the toes uh if we're talking about a front squat or goblet squat um high bar and um but it's actively creating space at the hips and you don't actively create space at the hips just by taking your stance wider um old powerlifting saying you can squat wide or you can squat deep you can't squat wide and deep unless you want to say goodbye to your hips. Um, so, you know, there's, there's a lot of other factors that get involved here. And, and uh, there's that active component of creating space at the hips and making sure that you're um, utilizing not only the structure, but the uh, muscle musculature and patterning uh, in the most efficient way possible. Um, yeah. So, there, structured dictates function function influences structure absolutely and uh you know i i you know i'm not one to like start well it's a podcast so you're not going to get visuals and i am not about to start throwing <laughs> these things up on youtube and editing them i just do not have the time <laughs> but um uh this is something that um you know if you can understand and see this concept in person it's a lot easier to to understand in general and, and, and to nail down because it does make a huge difference. Um, but listen, don't hear, we're not saying don't, you don't have to go out and start doing all this crazy, crazy, you know, all these hip drills because you think that's exactly what you need. If you're moving well and you're seeing the results that you're, you've been searching for, been training towards go for it. So uh, I think the big thing is just understanding that, um, everyone's different. Okay. When it comes to their architecture, um, and due to their architecture, they're going to move differently. And because of that, certain people are going to get a, uh, a different movement map and their movement competency is going to be different. Their mobility is going to, um, is, is going to be a little bit different for each individual. Their stability is going to be uh, a little bit different for each individual and a good coach can sort of sort that stuff out pretty quick. And, and yes, we've talked almost an hour on this topic, but I can usually, once I've screened someone, I can usually get someone squatting pretty well below parallel under 10 minutes. It's, it's if you know what you're doing and it's not that hard to do. Um, but I think I have wasted my time trying to do these small little subtle mobility drills that I thought would make a huge difference. And all it did was waste time because it, I was trying to, I was trying to make these subtle changes and they weren't even going to make a, a difference in, in, in myself or with my clients and, uh, simplicity rules, right. Um, you know, that's the beauty of, especially within the FMS, right. If you just, you look at a squat and, uh, you know, again, if they get a three, which is considered a kind of a perfect squat, I'm not saying it doesn't mean that they can squat with a bar or that even squat with a barbell over the head. It just means they currently have the capability to get into that position. It doesn't mean that that's how they're going to behave under load. 
or they know from a technique standpoint how to do it. And, and same thing when they score two, it just shows us that they've got potential and that they clear the baseline minimum. So it doesn't mean that they know how to do a goblet squat. It doesn't mean they know, know how to do a back squat, an overhead squat or anything else. It just, it just means, hey, we gave them some basic direction and they showed us that they could do the basics. And then you have to coach <laughs> because that's kind of what we get hired for. Absolutely. Uh, I'm thinking of a thing on social media where uh, a famous uh, lifter, Kolkov, Kolkov. Anyway, I, I somebody off and send us. Yeah, he's um, yeah, he's an Olympic lifting guy. Yeah, yeah. Dmitry Kolkov. Somebody was doing an FMS on him, and and he, you know, did not get a three on the uh, on the FMS uh, squat. I don't know what the rest of the scores was because somebody put up a single still picture and in a couple of comments and they said, Oh, look, he fails the FMS squat. And I'm like, well, no, he's just not a three. Like the fact that you even made that statement means you have no idea what you're talking about in reference to the FMS and a two would be sufficient. And if you put this guy in his only lifting shoes, probably going to, you know, that's would be an FMS two. Um, so just the, that sorry that popped into my head is like a uh, WTH moment mm-hmm. um, out out on the interwebs where people are like oh you know FMS doesn't work because Kolkov you know failed the squat it doesn't it didn't work fail. um, he <laughs> I love when people say that he did yeah all I know is he's not three and that's fine like that's that's not a problem at all so yeah um, you know have a baseline understand how people move. Um, yes, in the end, we want to keep it as simple as possible. And when the, I hate to say it this way, but when the easy stuff doesn't work, it's usually a reason. Sometimes that reason is structure and throwing a band on yourself and trying to crank on a joint and going through what you may be perceiving as a stretching pain, which is actually not a stretching pain, uh, but something more significant happening. Um, and you don't know what that, um, that end range should feel like, um, you know, you, you got, you got to adapt and uh, build your team, have people that you can work with uh, that can do those deeper assessments, get some imaging done. I remember somebody that uh, had, had worked for a year to improve their ankle mobility. I had them go get an x-ray and they're, they're never going to have ankle dorsiflexion. The, the, the positioning of their talus and calcaneus is so off that it's just, it's not going to happen. Okay. So we keep what they've got, but squat with a heel, uh, elevated heel and they do fine. You know, life is good. So, you know, sometimes you gotta, um, you gotta adjust, change, adapt, overcome. Absolutely. So, well, I think we've yapped enough on the pelvis and, uh, and, and on the femoral head and all that other fun stuff. But, um, this is the stuff that we kind of nerd out on, but, um, well, hopefully you'll learn something today. And uh, Brett, thank you for, for once again, sharing your knowledge. Um, do us all a favor. Um, uh, if you enjoyed this podcast, give us a positive review on whatever platform you're listening to. And we will see you on the next episode. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Mike. Hey, friends. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, we're going to ask you for a favor. Please leave us some positive reviews. Be sure to subscribe and share with your friends, family, and colleagues. Thanks again for listening to the Minimum Effective Dose Podcast.